I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is the Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing culture and life, past, present, and future. Let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, from mega yachts to tugboats to iceboats, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Captain Scott Dodson. Hello, Todd. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty great. What do we have in store for today's episode? Well, today I'm going to talk about solo sailing and an experience of how I got into it and how it related to a couple of other uh, endeavors that I do in my life, such as uh, writing uh, movies and, and sailing. So, yeah, it's kind of a combination, but I give some tips um, on how to set your boat up um, as well as a couple of small things uh, that make your life a little bit more comfortable when you're sailing long distance. Great. Take it away, Scott. I was sitting at a bar across from the Lahaina Marina in Maui, drinking a beer and watching the sunset. I was reflecting on the last two months and trying to summon the gumption for the next month and a half. I had sailed from Los Angeles as part of the Transpac race with my high school buddy, Tommy D. I had gotten Tommy into sailing when we were in high school. My 21-foot wooden sloop, Steppenwolf, was his first introduction to boats. He was now a news executive at ABC and from what I understood through the vagueness of his corporate speak, he was being groomed for one of the top spots at the network. After high school and college, he had gotten into sailing, and sailing fit his corporate image. He loved to race, so he was really a, ra- he was really a racer. And this race was his first ocean race. He contacted me kind of out of nostalgia to help him. Uh, we raced an Olsen 30. It has a PHRF rating of 998. She's a ultra-light mini-sled, as I like to call her. Um, she was very fast for her size, but very light. And giant sail plan. We had lost touch for uh, with each other for a number of years. He was married, had two kids. He lived in San Francisco. He was a big wig in the corporate, and he had contacted my sister, who passed uh, along my number. I was living an unconventional life. I was sailing and writing screenplays. I was skippering a Hinkley out of San Diego when the owner passed away and the family sold the boat. I made the last delivery to L.A. for the new owner. I was... uh, basically cast on the lee shore, as they say. While walking on the beach in Venice, I ran into a college friend, Willie. Willie was in my writing classes at UNCG. We got along really well in an environment that was more Shark Tank than collegial campus. Willie was a film producer at MGM. We walked down the beach He asked if I had a couple of stories that might make great movies. I pitched him a couple of stories I was working on, and and he liked them. 
My Lee Shore had just become my money shore. I wrote out the synopsis on three stories, and Willie paid me 15 grand for each story. I had six months to deliver the first script for, a, for another bonus, and so on for all three stories. This was, a, this was a huge, huge, huge thing. Because later that day, I was sitting in the hotel room. I had no car. I had no apartment because I had been living on the Hankley. My clothes were stuffed in a duffel bag. And a big fat check of 15 grand and contracts for more money. And I was so excited and so happy I didn't know what to do next. I called my sister to tell her the news. That's when she gave me Tommy D's number. This was just positive on top of positive. Tommy D had talked to my sister briefly, and between the two of them, they'd come up with this idea that I was destitute and homeless. Homeless, kind of, but I, you know, I had dough. He devised a plan to have ABC uh, pay me for a piece on the Transpac race and his adventure. Um, he would get me enough money for the prep, the trip, and a stay in Maui, and the return trip. I was thrilled. I was pumped. The Lee Shore never felt so good. I called Willie and told him the news, and all he said was, call him when I got to Maui. Needless to say, I was flush with cash, and I'm from doing two things. The two things that I love to do, and that's writing and sailing. Tommy D had the boat trailered down from San Francisco. It's uh, got a little skeg keel on it. It was a very nice little, you know, Olsen is is very fast, um, very small, and uh, somewhat uncomfortable. We had a couple of days that we went out sailing. And just to kind of get the, you know, the touch, uh, we loaded the boat up with some food um, all those things that you do when you go solo sailing, um, I know that there's a few things that I, I like to have with me when I'm solo sailing. Um, that would be, um, uh, of course, coffee. So we prepared for the race. We were ready to go. We had everything set. And, um, you know, w we popped our spinnaker at the start time at the gun. I'd say the gun. There really wasn't any gun. And, of course, all the big 65-footers and 70-foot sleds just exploded off the start line and took off. Um, you know, we did what we could do. We, we you know, we got up to our seven and a half knots uh, with a spinnaker, sometimes eight knots with a spinnaker, and we just sort of smoothed along. And I would maintain that spinnaker jib and mainsail for at least a week without barely touching the helm. So Tommy and I spent the first couple of days during the race, you know, catching up and reminiscing because there's a lot of dead time. I mean, I think this is the point that, you know, a lot of people don't realize is that solo sailing and sailing in general over long distances, um, it's like you create your own little world, right? You keep doing this, you do that, you do this, um, maybe watch a movie, um, uh, you, you could, you know, you cook, you, you read, etc. You keep going on with this is anything to keep yourself occupied. Um, as well as, you know, do the boat. 
So after we had caught up, um, and we were about a week out, uh, Tommy D uh, began to get sick. He had the flu. He surmised he had gotten it from his kids, and um, he was really struggling. He was throwing up. Uh, I had, we had talked about turning around. He didn't want to turn around. Um, it would have been a tough beat to get back, and we probably would have had to closest closest land was probably Mexico. Um, probably Puerto Vallarta at this point. And it was a good distance. It was almost it was almost futile to turn around and go back and or go in that direction. But I kept him hydrated and fed, and uh, he but he could barely he he could barely sit up. Um, and certainly he couldn't do watch. He tried to do watch one night, and I gave him like ten minutes, and he was out. So I said, "Go downstairs, you know, tuck yourself in." You know, throw some sails, and we had a lot of sails, so there was plenty of sails in the boat to sort of nestle yourself into. And he went off and slept and woke occasionally, get a good night's sleep. But basically, he left the race to me, and I carried on. And it was a really, really great experience for me in terms of adapting and and even though he was there on the boat I was really you know single-handing the boat and I enjoyed it I was becoming addicted to it and um, I was excited so one of the activities um, that I I kept doing to stay awake because I was doing all the watches I, I literally camped myself off in the cockpit and my main my main thing was is keeping the speed of the boat uh, morning, noon, and night, and keeping the um, you know the sails trimmed. Um, they would get out of trim fairly um, easily, and it took a lot of attention to kind of find that sweet spot because uh, these light boats have a tendency to get tossed around on the waves. And you get a lot of luffing up and all kinds of crazy stuff happening to yourself, your sail plan. But once I got things sort of settled, um, the Olsen kind of, she started to really, you know, find its, uh, its rhythm on the ocean. And that's sort of in solo sailing, that's one of the things that, that gives you um, the best alert and indication. You get into a rhythm. And you can feel the rhythm and you're going and going and going and you're feeling the rhythm all the way along. And and then if you go to sleep, which you're going to go to sleep, um, if that rhythm changes, you'll wake up immediately. And it's it's kind of a cool thing. But I know a lot of people don't talk about solo sailing in the sense that, you know, the boat's rhythm is really primary to the safety of the boat and to hearing if there's any sort of disaster. But one of the things I did just to keep my mind alert was to keep reading. So I had brought along uh, Joshua Slocum. And this was sort of an inspirational piece. And he writes, I had resolved on a voyage around the world. And as the wind on the morning of April 24th, 1895 was fair, at noon I weighed anchor set sail, and 
away from Boston, where the spray, the boat, his boat, had been moored snugly all winter. The 12 o'clock whistles were blowing, just as the sloop shot ahead under full sail. A short broad was made up of, a harbor, of the harbor on a port tack. Then, coming about, she stood to seaward, and her boom, well off to port, swung past the ferries and lively heels. A photographer on the outer pier of East Boston got a picture of her as she swept by her flag at the peak, throwing her folds clear. A thrilling pulse beat high in me. My step was light on the deck in the crisp air, and I felt there could be no turning back, and that I was engaging in an adventure, the meaning of which I thoroughly understood. It's beautifully written stuff. His book is, if you've not read Joshua Slocum's uh, Adventures of Spray, you have to. He literally was going to go down the Suez Canal um, to get into the Indian Ocean, but he realized when he got to Gibraltar um, that going across the southern Mediterranean would be too dangerous uh, for a lone sailor because at the time, in 1895, there were still a lot of pirates. So he headed to Brazil. Um, this is a pretty standard practice um, to go from, uh, you know, to cross the Atlantic and then head south um, and to the Straits of uh, Magellan um, out towards Brazil. He eventually made his way uh, to Australia. He sailed north along the east coast, crossed the Indian Ocean, and rounded Cape of Good Hope, and then headed back to North America. And for all you guys that are contemplating going sailing and ocean sailing, he did this without a chronometer, without GPS, and he used a traditional method of dead reckoning for longitude which required a cheap tin clock for the approximate time and noon sun sights for latitude. So he, he shot the, the noon sun when he could. On one long passage in the Pacific, Slocum was, also was famously shot some lunar distance observations. And these observations, um, they checked and gave a separate and independent um, verification of his longitude but his primary method for finding longitude was still dead reckoning and so he sailed he sailed the spray actually he's, he claims in his book that he he sailed the spray without touching the helm due to the length of the sail plan relative to the heel and the long keel um, this is interesting because uh, we don't have the kind of um, uh, long boom sail plans that we would that we that they did back then. Um, there was that sloop design was, um, um, you know, just take your boom and and add another six to eight feet to it, no matter what the size is, is and it's that percentage is uh, is what he's really talking about. And of course, being full keeled uh, also helped his boat in terms of its steering. Uh, my CT had a full keel, and in regardless of what the weather, she was very stable in terms of holding her course. Um, 
so anyway, he was he wasn't uh, he had a long keel and he was capable of self steering. Um, basically, he would tie off the helm and set the sails, and um, or as I say, lashing the helm fast. And um, in this instance, he sailed uh, over two thousand miles, thirty two hundred kilometers, uh, west across the Indian Ocean without once touching the helm. This is really kind of the solo sailing sailor's dream, where you don't have to touch anything and you just go. And I would say for all the distances that that I have done, and I mean I'm in the middle of talking about the, the Hawaiian story and, and this, I've sailed... Um, to the Caribbean, from Bermuda by myself, uh, from New York to Bermuda by myself, from the Caribbean to Bermuda and New York by myself, um, from the Azores into the Med by myself, um, and numerous other um, shorter distances, uh, 40, 50, 100 miles round trips. Mexico, I did several trips to Mexico by myself. And, and if you're a delivery skipper, this kind of stuff happens. You do, this is what you do. So when uh, Slocum returned, he returned June 27th in 1898. And uh, this is three years. He had circumnavigated the world, um, a distance of like 46,000 miles or 74,000 74, kilometers. And when he returned, he was almost unnoticed. Because at the time, the Spanish-American War, which was going on, kind of grabbed all the headlines. And it wasn't until he published some of his, sto his stories um, that people began to uh, find out about his, his amazing adventure. Which in the time of internet and, you know, looking at, you know, other people that are doing solo sailing and stuff like this. You know, I did a lot of the, of my sailing pre-internet. And even if I was on the internet, I wasn't, um, I wasn't making things public about the trips I was making. I mean, it wasn't anything to think that I could go on a, a, a thousand mile round trip um, sailing by myself or sailing solo. And, and getting, you know, and not saying a word to anyone. It was just like, okay, this is like normal stuff. It's like, okay, I'm going down to the grocery store. See you later. But I just wanted to bring up the solo sailing idea and especially to thank or congratulate, especially to congratulate um, Yannick uh, Besthaven. Uh, he just won the uh, Vendee Globe. And um, he did a amazing job it took him 80 days imagine three years versus 80 days 13 hours 59 minutes and 46 seconds his time he had a compensation time of 10 hours and uh, his his course took him 28,583 nautical miles with an average speed of 14.78 knots that's flying that's flying. And in this race, as I followed it, they had a lot of quiet days in this race that could have gone faster. I think the world record is, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
you can send me a you can send me a message um i think the world record is like 74 days or something like that i'm not quite sure this has always been the Vendée globe has always been one of those races when i was much younger that i really wanted to do but i could never get um all the sponsorship and it's an expensive expensive race um obviously you're not spending anything while you're racing but all the boats are you know these are these boats have foil keels they're they're high tech in every possible way and a lot of these high tech items and travelers and sails and booms and staysail all this kind of stuff eventually gets translated into the navigation instruments, um, everything that they develop for these boats to race today in the Vendée Globe, um, eventually find their way to the market. And you know the, you know Joe Blow, um, boat handling, sailing captain can get a hold of them. Um, so anyway, let me just kind of go back to the idea of what we're talking about here. When you go soul sailing, you need to set up the boat. And you need to set it up so you can handle it by yourself. Now, one of the things that's really important here is, is you have to be able to do everything on the boat if you're going to go out and solo sail. And ironically, a lot of people go out by themselves. I mean, I, I know guys who I've had conversations with. It's like, oh, yeah, I would never go solo sailing. But he can take his boat out of the dock by himself, go over to the fuel dock, fuel up, turn around and come back, go in the dock. And I said, well, those are two of the most difficult things you have to do when you're in a boat is docking and undocking your boat. The rest of it is just sailing, okay? So one of the goals is to make sure you keep everything um, as simple as possible. Most boats today, all the lines and everything run back into the cockpit, and you have auto helm. And auto helm is a huge, huge important thing, so you don't have to be steering at the same time as handling the lines because that can be that can, you can screw yourself up and it's actually advice wise even if you have somebody on the boat who is not an experienced steering person and you're having a hard time in some difficult weather and waves and you need to go out on the foredeck for whatever reason to untangle your furler or you know fix something up there or you know bring down a sail if it's a hank on sail Whatever the case may be, you're better off having the auto helm work for you than having somebody who's inexperienced in steering. I have more times than not been uh, airborne like an elevator with the bow going up and then the bow crashing down because the person steering wasn't paying attention to what I was doing and was looking around and got off course where the auto helm will keep you precisely on course. So this is an important thing. And then you have to ask yourself, can I do a couple of things by myself? Can you reef your mainsail by yourself? Is the spinnaker pole um, going to be too much for you to handle? That's a big one because a lot in ocean racing, you're going to use a lot of spinnaker. And in regular cruising crossings by yourself, you can always elect not to put the spinnaker up if it if it appears to be too dangerous. Um, 
But most of us are going to put the spinnaker up in a kind of seriously a, a downwind. Uh, you know, we're not going to need the, we're not, you know, it's going to be easier on deck, not too much pitch, not too much roll. And you're going to be able to set the spinnaker by yourself. But it's important that you go through this process with the spinnaker pole. Um, you know, there's a number of other shoots you could use that don't use a spinnaker pole. And, you know, like a zero and these things. These, you could use these or not use those. It depends. And if you're know, going to go wing to wing by yourself, you know, make sure that the, the environment is right. These guys that race in the Vendee Globe, when you see them out with a spinnaker and a 35-knot wind going downhill like 40 miles an hour, okay, these guys are super professional. They've done this a million, million, million times. And not only have they have the experience, and you may actually get the experience, through your passage of time and practicing it and this, that, and that thing, these guys are superior athletes. They're really great athletes. So, you know, think about it in, in, in that regard, you know, because this is fatigue is a huge problem with solo sailors until you learn how to manage it. And this is very, very important. Um, you know, you, you may uh, look at some basic stuff like moving the halyard clutch or to a bit more involved, such as converting a single-line reefing system. You know, a single-line reefing system is um, convenient where it's possible, but even adding a reef tack line and jammer back to the cockpit can be even better. It requires less line, and it ends up, you know, being tackle, um, tangled in the cockpit. The goal of single-handed sailing is, is to make the boat easy to sail. So if you go to like your local loft, you can get all sorts of ideas. You have sail loft, um, and, and they can help you out quite a bit. But, you know, racing or shorthand sailing, solo sailing, has uh, become really a big thing. I mean, roller furling head sails came from this. Canting keels all came from shorthand uh, racing. Um you know, there's a more kind of robust upwind, true wind, broad reach kind of idea going on that these systems and these sail handling systems, you know, uh, like a top-down um, spinnakers and furlers, electric winches, code zeros, all these are examples of, of hardware and sails that originated from offshore racing. So one of the things I recommend is to use a, a releasable, inner force stay with hanks and and make that your head stay and reef friendly um this is a it's a great kind of a emergency um thing as well as uh you know if you really have to reef down this is a better way to do it because your furler is not going to work and it's probably going to explode at some point which they all seem to do for some unknown reason and just make sure that you have enough um, reefs in your sails. Sometimes the sails have to be uh, re-sewn and re-engineered so that you can have uh, little reefs. Um, my boat, uh, my CT, um, was a catch. And um, I used to keep the staysail up a lot because it was a very small sail up on the bow. I would reef the main way down 
and then I would reef the mizzen sail. And I could pretty much ride out any storm with that. And I had, actually, I had the, the main could be reefed down almost to a post, postage stamp. Um, and, it, and it worked really, really, really well. And if it, if it was just a little too much, I could take the, uh, I, could, I could drop the main. Now, for that boat, most of the lines did not run into the cockpit. So for the main sole, and for the staysail, and for the, the jib slash Genoa, I had to go up on deck and pull them down myself because they were Hank on sails. Kind of the old-fashioned way of doing it. But that's why I always think of, of the physical occupation of a sailor, and I always imagine in my last podcast, you know, the Aubrey uh, Maturin series, you know, of guys, you know, climbing up these masts, and, you know, getting way out and bringing in sails by hand and standing on a line. Um, I just, uh, yeah, I can walk the deck. But one of the important things is, is safety um, for the solo sailor. So really, really consider, um, really consider that you should have your jack lines. Um, you should have straps running all the way down so you can just, you can just walk back and forth and keep your harness on. Um, there's a lot of famous stories about people who fell overboard, um, experienced sailors, um, yet try not to be one of those stories. Uh, make sure that you have like the right sort of equipment. Um, uh, some of you have, have um, seen some of our stuff um, that we advertise for, which is uh, Mustang Survival. Um, great, great kit. Um, super reliable and um, these are the kinds of things that you need to have on your on your boat and you need to be wearing so there's all sorts of pros and cons like different styles of deck vests and stuff but i i like the the little thin ones the uh, you know the the mustang survival musto has another one there um you can work in them they work very very well and then the second thing is, is after you have all your jack lines, your safety lines, uh, get a vest, you know, make yourself comfortable in the cockpit. You know, make sure you have some really solid cushions. I know one of the biggest things that I ever did is I, I bought, um, and they were somewhat expensive, um, closed cell foam, about uh, three inches, and I put them in my cockpit and, um, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't get wet they would get wet but they would you could sit on them um and uh, they would dry very quickly and um they they pr provided a lot of comfort and i had a bunch of pillows that i could bring out and sort of tuck behind myself so i can keep my eye on the horizon look for ships and keep my eye up on the sails and keep keep everything going in the right direction but comfort is an important is an important thing. Um, another little trick that I always did is is pacing myself what I ate. Um, I would try to have a big meal, um, maybe two big meals, but that would be always during the day, um, never at night, because you know after you eat a big meal, you kind of want to fall asleep. So daytime is a great time to um, 
get uh, as much food in you. And remember, you're just filling yourself up. It's just energy. So carbs are welcome. Um, you know, if you're, if you're constantly on a diet or something, when you go sailing, you're going to use so much energy and so many carbs. Literally, I have lost 10 pounds in, in a crossing. And I have eaten like a horse throughout the whole time. But it's the constant movement of the boat. And the second thing that really I want to tell everybody to make sure that you have a first aid kit at hand. All right. Um, if you can get some uh, like the spray Novocaine stuff, you know, for bumps and bruises, that's very helpful. Um, you might find having dental stuff that you could put in your mouth um, to help with teeth. For some reason, people always have teeth problems when they're out sailing solo or sailing by themselves. And of course, there's the whole, you know, get seasick, um, seasick pills, Dramamine, etc. Um, honestly, I think your body will have, your body gets used to the seasickness. Um, once you get past a couple of days on the boat, um, it probably won't affect you as much. It won't be as severe. But uh, a big old box of ginger snap cookies um, will help. Ginger has always been the Chinese remedy for um, seasickness. Um, and that's it's kind of important. At night, um, I used to I used to make um, espresso. This was a very famous this is, this is a drink that I used when I worked um, in New York as a writer uh, for a magazine in New York. Um, I spent a lot of nights out going to clubs and stuff like that to write about the, the clubs and art openings and stuff. And I was, I was often up to two, three, four, five o'clock and at six o'clock in the morning, sleep a couple hours and go. But one of the things I did was when I went to these clubs and stuff, I never, I couldn't drink, um, because I was there to write about what I was observing and so I, I kind of developed this, this drink, which was um, espresso, a couple shots of espresso on ice with a little Baileys. And, um, you know, stir that up, put that in your cup. And, and even without the ice, I like the ice because it melts eventually and it makes it a little less. I like the idea that the espresso is going to keep you up and the Baileys is going to just take the edge off of that coffee high and I used to do that um, apples was one of my favorite at night kind of thing crunchy sweet sugar sort of keep you up a little bit and another and this is purely my taste starburst I used to buy big bags of starburst and that way I could keep them in my pocket starburst you know, I'm sitting up on deck, and if I just need something to chew on, that always worked out really well for me. And I mean, you have, you probably have your own um, likes and dislikes for, you know, um, stimulants to keep you um, awake. And the the point I'm make, trying to make is is don't overstimulate, because when you overstimulate, then you're going to be exhausted. Um, you got to find the right sort of balance of a little bit of sugar versus, you know going through a diabetic coma 
Um, that kind of stuff is really important. And then the next thing I would say is to make sure you have a, a great um, communication plan. You know, tell the people, your friends, your family, um, where you're going to sail, how you're going to sail, what your estimated, rough estimate of time of arrival. Um, you know, and there's so, there's so many other things that you can, you can add your AIS transponder could be there. And a lot of people, what they do is they put on their AIS transponder, their call sign, they change it to solo sailor and then your name. So mine would be solar sailor, Scott or Scott Dodgson. All right. Um, you know, you load all your Navonics maps in. Uh, don't forget extra battery packs. Um, you know, make sure Wi-Fi in the middle of the ocean doesn't work. <laughs> just so you know. Um, your cell phone isn't going to work. Um, just so you know. Um, so, you know, look at it. You know, a lot of guys can get a shortwave radio. I used to have uh, a shortwave radio on my boat in which I could talk to the nets all over the world and if you've ever read uh, um, uh, John Hawk's book um, uh, Outer Bridge Reach I highly recommend it that's a great sailing story very sad very true story uh, very but incredibly well written just an amazing um, an amazing book it's called Outer Bridge Reach it's probably something you should read if you're a sailor um, Outer Bridge is uh, up in Jersey, around New York. So don't forget extra batteries. Um, and before you go out, uh, I know that when we did the Transpac, we had to take a safety at sea course that they put on for the for the Transpac. And um, even the, Nor um, the Newport Bermuda race on the East Coast does the same thing. Um, so... <clears throat> So going solo doesn't mean um, going it alone. And um, so make sure that you stay in touch with people and there's a great community of sailors and make sure the person that you're staying in touch with is not like, you know, it's like your wife who thinks, okay, yeah, he's, he's at the sailboat. I have no idea where the marine is and I don't know what to do. Give them a list of give her a list of things to call if there's a problem, all right. Or have a friend who really knows what they're doing. Somebody in your yacht club or somebody who sail with. Keep them informed so they can watch what you're doing. I mean, even today I have friends. Uh, many of you listen to the Tommy Twang uh, interview, and you know I track Tommy's progress all the way down Mexico through the Gulf. Uh, through the Panama Canal and, and, and up into uh, Houston. I followed him all the way. Kept in, no, I didn't talk to him all the time, but I knew where he was. And it was, uh, you know, it's very, very important. So I go back to sitting at the bar in Maui. And, um, you know, quite honestly, I kind of didn't want to leave. So I, I did contact Willie. And uh, literally, Willie flew over to uh, Maui, and uh, we just hung out and talked about stories. We had a great time. We had a really, really great time. And um, he was an interesting guy. I gave him, literally, I gave him the first, I gave him all three synopsi uh, for the three 
movies. And I might mention to those people that are thinking of screenwriting, this age I'm talking about was one of the best stages for a screenwriter. You could write an idea down on a napkin and end up getting dough for it. There was such a need for this um, from producers, and producers were, that was, you know, they were mining, looking for the right script and looking for all, you know, what to do with the next movie because it was it was just it was just the right thing to do for them and and but that time has changed. It's become more corporate. Um, it's more difficult to get a, a movie made. The process is much more difficult to get a screenplay. You could have the greatest screenplay. It could be formatted perfectly. Everything could be perfect on it, technically perfect on the script. And all that's going to get you is into the pool with the pros who have been doing it for a long time. And the way to break out on screenplays like sailing is you got to go it alone. You got to make your movie. You got, you got to have all the skills to, to, to write it, to, to hopefully manage to direct it or produce it all of these things you have to get i don't think today you can be just a screenwriter and get stuff done i think you're just kidding yourself if that's what you're going to do and pinning your hopes on it whereas a solo sailor you know he has to know everything he's got to be a mechanic he's got to do that and i want to mention one thing about that is that i used to run my engine by the way um every day to charge up my batteries um and i always used to i'd I had a schedule, but I used to always try to find a time um, when the winds were really light so that I could motor during that period and, you know, make up like a course correction or make up, you know, a few miles that I thought I should have. And this is, you know, rather than sitting in the doldrums, you know, run. But if you if you take the number of days you expect to be out um, on a trip, um, you know, like for the trip coming from, it took us 28 days to go from the West coast of California to Maui for the Transpac. Um, you know, Tommy got to feeling better. Um, the last two or three days, he really wasn't, he really wasn't on top of his game even then. Um, you know, the motion of the boat and all the rest of this stuff, I mean, it really knocked him down. He he was literally sick for two weeks with the flow, okay, which was like the middle two weeks of our trip. And um, the last the last week or so, last, I think, eight days or so, he, he could take watches and stuff like that. But that that taught me that I could I could solo sail by myself. You know, I could do that. And it was kind of really cool. And I loved it. I loved being out there. It was challenging and it was, you know, it was just one of those things that, that once you get hooked into doing it, um, it's very highly addictive and extremely satisfying. So Willie came out, you know, we got the boat in. Tommy was, you know, he had to hop on a plane to go back to actually New York. Um, he left me a, a, a couple of Hawaiian shirts and stuff like that and, and left me a couple of gifts. And he said, don't worry about whatever you're going to write or whatever the case may be. And he took off. And the marina, the slip, it was a temporary slip we were in. It, so it was temporary for a couple of weeks. 
And this time that I'm sitting there having a beer, uh, Willie had come. He'd spent three, four days with me. We had talked about stories and this, that, another thing, and where we were with the, made some changes. And and um, he literally took the three synopsi back uh, to to Los Angeles with him. We had a wonderful time, and you know, I got I, I had more money waiting for me when I got to Los Angeles. He was going to give me checks when I got there. And um, my question is, is whether I was going to jump on this boat, this Olsen 30, and take it back to San Francisco by myself. I actually started looking for people. Couldn't find anybody. Um, it's also a problem um, when you do a lot of deliveries and um, transit a lot of boats. It's, it's hard to find good crew. Um, but I decided to, after my experience, because I was realizing there was a sort of addiction with this. So I decided to do it by myself and I took the boat by myself from Maui, um, to San Francisco. Um, I did that in 31 days. Um, I have to say that. Uh, I'm an outgoing person, um, but I was really happy to talk to people when I got there. And um, I, I came into San Francisco, and, 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 and literally that was the first time I'd ever uh, sailed underneath uh, San Francisco, uh, the Bay Bridge there, and um, which was cool. And um, just uh, parked the boat. Uh, Tommy met me at the dock, and, um, you know, we said hello you know goodbye i've never seen him since that day and i picked up my duffel bag and and uh, my little portable typewriter which i used throughout the whole trip and um i got on a bus and i went back to um los angeles and for the life of me i couldn't figure out why i was going back to los angeles um basically to pick up checks that was the reason but there was nothing in you know i had made the contact or contacts for the writing career so there was nothing really other than that in los angeles um i did hook up with willie the films by the way never got made which is something as a screenwriter you should probably know the chances of getting made are even more remote than you getting paid for your writing but anyway, I ended up uh, at that point going to um, back to New York, and um, I ended up taking a, a boat a in, at a delivery, a 45-foot something, and uh, down to the Caribbean. And the Caribbean, I ran into my love, uh, which was my CT-54, and began... 20 years of uh, chartering and sailing around the world with with that beautiful boat and the one thing that I I guess that you there's two pieces of advice here one is um, if you go solo sailing you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna destroy the world you live in you're gonna you're just gonna love it so much that you just can't get enough of it and second, the hardest part of the journey of solo sailing is, is not having anyone to share the good moments with you. That's the hardest part. Um, other than that, I find being out on the sea, 
to be the most humbling and warm and lovely feeling in myself as a human being of anything I have ever done in my life. Uh, thank you for listening, and um, I look forward to your comments and questions. Um, we can talk more about solo sandal sailing and single-handed, short sailing, whatever you want to call it. Um, don't take it lightly. Uh, prepare it. Don't do it without some kind of assistance. And um, consider yourself warned. Uh, Thanks for sharing, Scott. That was an interesting story. What is the thing that is the most difficult task of sailing solo? Well, I think, you know, I think everybody thinks that sailing solo is this this constant, um, you know, work and trimming sails and and just on and on and on. Basically, it's kind of fighting boredom to a certain extent. Um, there's a lot to do. You have a, uh, as a solo sailor, you have a little schedule in your head and you're always on the lookout for, uh, other vessels, especially, um, if you're in any sort of, uh, shipping lanes. Um, but as long as you have your, your systems up and, um, your most, most, most boats will have radar, and you have a warning system, so if anything comes within, you know, 15 nautical or 20 nautical miles of you, um, the warning will go off and you, you know, you can, you can look at it. Um, I think sleep deprivation is maybe the second thing. Um, once you kind of get used to only sleeping a couple, you know, 20 minutes here and 20 minutes there, um, best to sleep if you're going to sleep is is in the middle of the day when the sun is high. Um, that way you can um, you, your boat will be seen even though you may not see them. Um, I remember once uh, I was in the cockpit. I was sleeping. I was actually I was taking a boat from the Azores um, uh, to uh, Italy, and um, I was doing it by myself, solo sailing. And uh, I was uh, tucked in the little uh, corner outside, and everything was doing fine. And I just dozed off for like a second. Oh, at least I thought it was for a second. And it was really warm. And I woke up, and I looked around, and there was a Chiquita banana boat, like giant ship, like, like 100 yards from me, going in the same direction. He just passed me. And it was like, he was like right there. You can't, I was like, whoa, I almost got hit by a banana. Um, yeah, that's, but there's all sorts of, you know, I would, and the thing is, is I was awake. My radar didn't go off. The, the, the alarm didn't go off. So I was like completely like upset by that. It had worked before other times, but this time it didn't. And the third thing that sometimes is when you get tired is you begin to have sort of this, optical illusion thing going on when you're at sea you start seeing stuff and i remember once i saw this light and i thought it was a ship and it could have been a ship and it was yeah we're kind of in the shipping lanes and it could be this it could be that and that light kept getting brighter and brighter and brighter and i said man i checked my radar i had nothing on my radar and i'm thinking oh this piece of 
radar crap isn't going to isn't working right and you know i should do reboot it and do a diagnostic and i keep looking at this really really bright light and i was convinced this was some kind of big ship with a big giant light going on it but it wasn't it was the moon <laughs> rising through the clouds freaked me out but anyway that's what delirium can do so that's something you fight and the only way you can fight delirium is is you know, shut your eyes and um, go to sleep for a good hour get some REM sleep and then you'll be up and going but the longer you do it the easier it becomes yeah so what do we have planned for next week's episode well, next week I thought we would do something um, a little bit more interesting, a place that a lot of people talk about, and surprisingly, a lot of people don't go to because they have a lot of misconceptions about it, and that is the Principality of Monaco. Um, I have been in Monaco many, many times, and I'm going to talk about some of the trips I've made there. And really, uh, if you're a cruiser um, and you got a little extra money, it's not cheap, um, but it's it's within line of all the rest of the marinas uh, up and down the 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 um, Côte d'Azur. And if uh, it, but it's also one of the most fascinating places. It's a great place to go out to eat. Um, it's just a really interesting place. And and the one thing that most people don't know about Monaco is is that. A majority of Monaco is underground. There are escalators that go here and go there, and everything is tunnels and shopping centers that are underground. Um, it's a lot of fun, and it's really interesting. And, um, of course, we have F1, and I'll talk a little bit about that. And if you've ever wondered how you get your yacht on the quay for F1, I will recount a few of the stories I've I've done it a number of times so next week monaco thank you for tuning in if you like this episode be sure to subscribe on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts also be sure to rate and review you can find us on facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org you can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com our theme song is sung by paulette mcwilliams with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.